0: Thank you. friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm on the phone with Jeff Nixar. He is the author of the new book, The Lost Art of Heart Navigation, a modern shaman's field manual. He is a shamanic practitioner and the owner and founder of Great Plains Guide Company AKA Great Plains Shamanic Program, an array of shamanic healing programs, including individual counseling, education programs, outdoor retreats, and wilderness trips. Jeff began walking the shamanic heart path in 2009 after experiencing a life-changing vision quest in Northern Michigan. And I think what I'd like to do from here is ask you, Jeff, and welcome warmly to Future Primitive to tell us about your path when you stopped being a lawyer and uh, stepped onto another side of life. Sure.
1: Sure and I'm happy to do this. This is always the hardest question for me to answer because it requires telescoping so much, but I'll do my best here and I'll keep it short. Thank I you. was uh, in law school immediately after college and immediately within the first week had a sense that I was uh, not supposed to be there. It was and My heart was not in it and it turned out to not be what I thought, but I was uh, frightened. I had moved across the country. I had quit a job. I had told all my friends and family. I had invested money and so on and so forth so I was invested uh, very much in doing this but my heart was saying no and yet I stuck with it for the first year because I didn't know what else to do I uh, I did not have a clear sense of, of uh, myself, my so-called heart as I write in the book and I just sort of stuck it out and after a year I took a year off, I went to New York City and uh, tried to follow my bliss, I drove a taxi cab in the daytime and. Um, pursued art and photography and these were all good instincts but I still didn't have a clear sense of specifically what my gifts were and I began to struggle because it was a big city and a lonesome place and wound up back in my home town for an awful winter uh, sleeping in my childhood bed and just feeling like a complete failure I went back to law school and I finished because I didn't know what else to do and I thought at least I would have a secure job and a honorable position. And yet, when I finished law school, I felt even more anxious and um, was beginning to have uh, physical problems, GI problems, migraines, you name it. And right about then, I met a young woman who today is my wife, and I had wandered into a Catholic church, uh, just searching. It was just a random stop. Um, And uh, long story short, I was immediately uh, taken by what seemed to be this correlation between her her heart, her, her natural gifts, and the work she was doing. In other words, her life, her external life, was clearly aligned to who she was. And she was just alive. She was just vital and vibrant, and you could just see the glow coming off her. And all I knew at that point was, was that I wanted that. I wanted to be like that. It wasn't so much her role, the Church the institutional role. It was that... Um, seeing a person whose external life was fully aligned with her internal gifts, her medicine. And uh, I decided not to practice law. I walked away from the legal profession. I had no clear idea what I was going to do next, a lot of loans due, but did my best and slowly retooled myself uh, into becoming a um, professional hospital chaplain, which was much more aligned to my gifts and calling, as a, doing one-on-one counseling, and so forth. And yet still there was a sense I wasn't quite in the right groove, I was like in the right ballpark. And many more years passed. Uh, became licensed as a massage therapist because I liked using my hands, wanted to integrate more healing work with the human body. But it wasn't until in 2009 I participated in a traditional wilderness vision quest on an island in Northern Lake Michigan. Uh, with my first teacher, Michael Smith, that it it all came home to me. Uh, the revision I received was essentially a single word, which was simplify. And then in parentheses, you might see the word stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like, my whole life had become so complicated and top-heavy with commitments
0: and busyness
1: and important tasks, but it, it, it was all hollow for me, and... um it required me to completely clear the deck. At the time, I was trying to care for my mother I had Parkinson's disease. I had a full-time job, a part-time job. I was running a volunteer bicycle advocacy uh, organization in my town, and many more things. And these were all important matters. But, but I needed to to clear all of them, except, of course, for my family commitments, which I did. I came home from the Vision Quest and began composing resignation emails and one by one I would hit the send button and oh my gosh it was like a great liberation every time I would send a resignation email out from one of my commitments. I just felt a huge weight lifting from my chest and again long story short I uh, began participating as an apprentice in shamanic healing with that first teacher Michael Smith. Uh, Not really knowing what I was getting into but it just felt good to be around that community of people who were embedded in earth-honoring spirituality, and years later, here I am. This is what I do now, I, um, and I just love it. I can't imagine doing anything else. So what I, I wrote this book because it's the book I wish I would have had <laughs> way back in yes. law school and in college when I was struggling to find my path. And it's not like I had some big trauma in my life. I had a good education. I had a nice family. I had a traditional religious upbringing in the Catholic Church. And yet, how could I have been so out of touch with my core self? And in the book, I basically say it's because half of my essential navigation system was offline, the heart, the soul. And so I wrote this book to help ordinary people Learn what this is all about and how to navigate real situations in the real life using these ancient yet powerful methods that are rooted in shamanic spirituality.
0: Well, um, I was very touched because I recall 33 years ago when I got sober, I would sit in these AA meetings, and there was this old man there, what they call an old-timer, and um, he kept sharing, I got sober because I didn't want the song to stay inside of me. And so when you say calling down the song of for your life, I look at the perspective so many so many years later and I remember that uh, that that is probably the phrase that kept, that has kept me sober. Mm. So would you comment about what that means for you calling down the song of your life?
1: Yes, that's a beautiful story you told and um I don't even remember where I first heard that phrase, but it, it's, um, it's the difference between living a capable, responsible, uh, effective, productive life, which is fine, and living your particular life and power and medicine, your unique, as Michael Smith calls it, your angel mission in the world, or what a traditional shamanic healer might call your medicine. Uh, so it's, it's finding that sweet spot where it's effortless to be doing what you're doing because it's natural to you and then finding the intersection between that and some need out in the greater world and when you do that when you are blessed and supported and able to find that beautiful effortless intersection it's like music and, and it's, it's not work and the practical concerns like how am I going to make a living and what will my family think and all of those real issues c- cease to be controlling over you and things just start working out. An and example I use in the book, a day, daily example of what it feels like, is like when you're trying to get through a busy urban area and the traffic lights, none of them are lined up for you and you're stuck behind buses and other cars and taxis just cursing, looking at your watch, you're late for some meeting. The difference between that and those times when you find a, a venue through a city where all the traffic lights are sequenced, and you find that sweet spot of velocity where you are hitting all the green lights one after the other, and it's the same city, and it's the same vehicle, but it's it's like magic. It's uh, but it's not. It's just understanding um, that there is a sequence and aligning yourself to that. So. It's a, it's a joy compared to about 45 years of just sheer struggle and feeling alienated and out of joint with my own life compared to now. It's um, it's like singing. So hmm. but thank you for reminding me of that phrase, calling hmm. down the song for your life. It's
0: it's, um, it's so... It, it generates so much gratitude to live a life where you're singing your song.
1: Mm. It does, it does. (laughs) And I can tell you know what that's like yourself.
0: I'm so grateful.
1: Yes, it's, um, I, I just, and I, you know, my work comes out of compassion then, looking around for all the people who have not yet found the song for their life. And, and, you know, it doesn't have to mean that the person is homeless or in jail or suffering an addiction. They could be living a very uh, outwardly successful life. And uh, years later, I've been surprised how many professionals I meet who continued on. Like, at the time I left the legal profession, I felt like the only guy on planet Earth who, you know, who was confused about my profession with the degree under my belt. But now, (laughs) having met many people... (laughs) who so have gone through an entire career not knowing who they are. And it gets worse and worse because the uh, <laughs> the grave approaches, you know, the end of this life before we pass over. And so the mm-hmm. urgency goes up each day. And so this is who I I kind of think is my audience. <laughs> so anyone out there feeling a bit uh, out of joint with your purpose and not knowing, though, what that is. Uh,
0: How does a person even know that they have a particular purpose. How do you say it, that no, well, the soul, perhaps? How does a person know they have a soul that needs to sing?
1: I think it's, it's in a practical way, it's, it's, it's not complicated. In that if, if on the one hand, the person is happy, you know, they kind of almost jump out of bed in the morning and look forward to the day, whatever it involves, then perhaps that person has been living this song all along and then has just been blessed with uh, being able to do that instinctually. However, if you're more like I had been for most of my life, is working very, very hard to be productive and happy and doing all the things that my church and my family and my community and so on were telling me would bring happiness, and it's not. That's probably a good clue that you've not found your medicine, found your song yet. But, plus, life will continue to pester you. <laughs> the, the Spirit, the Creator, is very persistent because it wants us to be fully alive. And if we are off the beam of our life, you will know it. And, if, you know, the, as, as Michael Smith puts it, the issuer of invitations in our lives, the many, many opportunities we have to live a more authentic, medicine-filled life, if we keep ignoring those, at some point this turns into physical yeah. issues, and then the issuer of invitations becomes the issuer of illnesses. And so many and you know of our chronic illnesses, I'm just convinced, are rooted in people simply being out of... Uh, joint with their calling, old fashioned religious word, but our calling or vocation.
0: So uh, here we have this phrase that you write that that a uh, a happy life perhaps is is a life that relates to an earth honoring world view. And so maybe there's there's an emergency here for people to become clearer about our relationship with the planet.
1: Yeah, because things are sure not going well, are they? Uh, It's getting harder and harder to ignore our impact on the earth, even if a person is not all that fond of nature, so to speak. It's it's just becoming more obvious. And the, the beautiful thing for me, having been raised and then trained professionally in the modern religious tradition of Christianity, Judeo-Christianity, and having, you know, sort of mastered all that, the texts and the scripture and the history, and is, is that these indigenous traditions that shamanism is based in are inherently rooted in the earth, in nature. They're not uh, anthropomorphic religions where at the center is a human being, or the face of a human being, some religious hero who was a mm-hmm. human. It's... It's it, it, we, it's seen as humans are part of the great web. And so finding one's way, finding one's medicine or healing or becoming happy in all these uh, endeavors all need to be uh, directly related and embedded in the bigger picture. So a, a person, in order to find their way, so to speak, in these indigenous traditions inherently would have to be in relationship with nature and that's one way to get off the beam and to become sick is to lose one's uh, connection and relationship with as the lakota say mitakuye oyas'in all our relations but that doesn't mean human relations so that in a nutshell is what i found to be missing even in the best parts of, of our modern uh, world religious traditions is none of them have at their center a core relationship with the natural world, and at worst, can be seen as utilizing some of the teachings out of context to justify exploitation of the natural world for human goals. And uh, so, um, I was just reading a book by a Lakota author, and and he had this beautiful little phrase, it's like, (laughs) non-Indians come out to the reservation and complain about all the old cars and trash in our yards and ask, why don't we clean that up? And the Indians will look at the non-Indians in the big cities and say, and why would you build an entire parking lot on top of a wetlands and have no problem with that? Right. (laughs) So, you know, it's all a matter of perception. And uh, So that's, that's my response about the happy life of needing to be related in a deep way to the Earth and one's relationship with the earth, not just humans and human institutions.
0: Is there a relationship between our um, our distance from the natural world and our wounding?
1: Oh, beautiful question! Mm. I think absolutely. I think that's a highly perceptive question, and you know, in, in the shamanic traditions, the The phrase is soul loss. That's the the code phrase for kind of the source of everything that's wrong. If we get sick, if we're unhappy, we've experienced some amount or a lot of soul loss, loss of our vital essence or energy, our core of aliveness. And a huge part of that in our modern world is our disconnect from nature and even children nowadays, as evidenced by... (laughs) our inability to hold still, and how everything we do seems to leave a wound upon the earth. Mm. Even, I have a friend, uh, I bought a Prius hybrid, I was very proud of myself 10 years ago, and I have a wise friend who just kind of smiled and he said, Jeff, that's great, I'm glad you did that, but you understand that the manufacture of that vehicle (laughs) took a lot out of the earth, you know, the metal, the resources, the glass, the copper, the rubber, so not to think that I was healing the earth by buying a hybrid vehicle. And that was a humbling point that I think was true. Even our our lifestyles, even our so-called environmental lifestyles still leave quite a heavy footprint upon our mother, the earth.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would it be, what is it like for a... Um a white contemporary person to find their indigenous self. Mm.
1: Beautiful. This is difficult. This is um, I, I struggle. I am a middle-aged bald right. white man. okay <laughs> I
0: what I mean. I,
1: and, and I say in my book right at the top of the page one, I think that I am not a Native American. I do not have a grandmother, a great-grandmother who was a Cherokee princess, you know, and that's kind of a a, a little snark at all the people that we meet who, who, who seem proud of this alleged relationship to some real tribe, but they know nothing about this, and they're throwing these terms around, and this is a great source of pain and frustration for Native people because, of course, of all the exploitation, the genocide, and so forth, but, but we all have a relationship to the earth native people do not have a copyright or an exclusive relationship to nature or nature spirit it's just that most of our non-indian western cultures have completely lost it or forgot it or minimized it or rejected it and so we look inside perhaps now and say oh my gosh what are we doing to our planet and the problem is We have no answer. We don't have an earth-honoring economic system. We don't have an earth-honoring political system. We don't even have an earth-honoring religious tradition.
0: We don't even have a people-honoring political system.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So we are in great... We we look inside our hearts and there's nothing there in terms of being able to remember and reconnect with our own indigenous roots. And of course... You don't have to be a Native American or an Aboriginal to have indigenous roots. We all do. But Western people tend to think of themselves as, for example, Belgians or French or Swiss or Germans. And, of course, those designations are political generations that only go back several hundred years. But we all come from indigenous traditions that go back tens of thousands of years. We just know nothing about them. So, I. Deep debt of gratitude to those particular modern Native people who have been willing to teach their traditions cautiously to non-Indians. And um, I, I've been blessed myself, for example, just last summer I was invited to participate in a First Nations Cree Sundance Ceremony in Alberta, outside of Alberta, Canada. And that was just a priceless um, immersion in an authentic, intact Culture that had not forgotten this most powerful ceremony of their entire year. And there's just no way, reading books or going to movies or talking to people or lectures, that
0: a non-Indian
1: can get a taste of what that top-to-bottom, front-to-back immersion and integration with with a nature-based spirituality without being invited. So it's difficult. but. In my book, I try to first give the disclaimer, <laughs> I'm not of a Native American, and then I go on to do my best to share what I believe are more or less um, shared practices, no matter what one's tradition or origin. So I'm trying to walk a very fine line between exploitation of that's inappropriate of Indigenous traditions and my birthright and responsibility to get my act together and do what I can to help heal the earth and my relationship to that.
0: I think I'm feeling at this moment that it would be discrimination to think that white people could not be shamans. In other words, my own definition of shaman is... Filtering one's intelligence through the heart mm, yes. at every moment, and so there's no reason because, as you said before, white people are indigenous people too. We've just we've just forgotten, and uh, and Martin Prechtel says such a beautiful thing, and I I. I'm taking the chance to say this again. Uh, I said to him, but uh, I don't like my immediate ancestors. I don't think they were doing great, you know, whatever. And and he said to me, just go back to the last ancestor that was connected to the earth Mm. and remember and honor from there.
1: Yes.
0: So... I mean, it's just loss loss of memory that has made that we don't remember our, our own innate shamanism to a certain degree.
1: Yes, it's like a form of spiritual amnesia or one might say dissociation or a dissociative state to use modern psychological yeah, terms. And yeah. I think you're right about the discrimination issue. My first teacher sat me down at one point because I was struggling with this, because I have no Native American kinship or ties whatsoever, and I was feeling a little bit like a... And he sat me down and said, look, there are racist people everywhere on the planet. You don't have to be white to be a racist. And there's been a terrific amount of traumatic wounding of indigenous people. So naturally, there's a resistance, a hesitation, and a fear. Of white people, and that somehow in my practice I need to find a way to find my way, as, as, as you're talking about. We all have this heart, and we can all filter our intelligence through the heart, as you just beautifully put it. That no one can tell us we can't do that. And in fact, its I mean, it, to, to look at it in another way, I, I mean, can you think of, of a group of, of a of a social group that more needs these traditions than people like me, white men,
0: who, yeah, you know, yeah, completely people like
1: lost you. our souls. We could be, like, putting us in, you know, like, uh, retraining camps all over the planet, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be humorous because it doesn't... No, a no, I issue,
0: hear but, you. That's great.
1: So you're exactly right. Uh, the discrimination can be leveled, but to not get sidetracked by that because we all have this responsibility personally to our own hearts and then to the greater natural
0: world. I I think that's beautiful, absolutely. And um so here's what I found once I was able to reconnect I was gonna say fully, but uh I I have to be humble, otherwise it's not the heart speaking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Once I reconnected with my heart, the most important thing to me became intimacy with everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speak about intimacy to us, please, Jeff.
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's kind of a progression here in doing this work—the so-called path of the heart, which is just you know a modern phrase that my teacher used to convey this ancient and yet universal path. And, and then the first step, of course, is do your own work. Uh, in modern terms, we might talk about the shadow side of ourselves and mm-hmm. so on. In other words, become intimate with yourself and not just the nice, pretty, uh, adorable parts of ourselves, you know, the sort of uh, think positive uh, part of ourselves, but the darker sides of ourselves. The, the parts that we don't want to look at and don't love that we feel we need to reject because there have been difficulties in our lives, that all of that needs to be welcomed to the tree of life, so to speak. I'm using an image that was so central in the Cree tradition and, and uh, of, of the sun dance, of having the sacred tree at the center of the arbor and all the dancers all the tribal community goes to the tree over and over again, and everybody gets to go to the tree. Mm. The grandmothers, the little children, the animals, they have a horse ceremony. So that's been a beautiful image for me, that even my broken-off shadow sides, my frightened little boy, my uh, out-of-control teenage self, all of you name it, Mm -hmm. they all need to be welcomed to the tree of my deep, authentic self. So that's job number one in the intimacy. And then at some point, of course, it's not just about self-healing and then being happy in a selfish way, some kind of personal prosperity gospel of shamanism. One needs to take this, this integration, which, which brings with it terrific resilience and um, what I call in the book power related to the medicine. And power doesn't mean in a kind of modern negative sense uh, Power over another person or um, hegemony. It, it means the power that comes with just being alive and, and, and uh, happy and vital, meaning you'll be more resilient. Um, my life is no less complicated or difficult than it ever was, but what is different, having practiced these traditions now, is I'm just not as, uh, it doesn't roll my boat. <laughs> it's like the waves of life keep coming, but they don't swamp my boat. It, I've been a sea kayaker, and then if you're a skilled sea kayaker, you, mm-hmm. you can get flipped completely upside down in the ocean, mm-hmm. and you just flip right back up like a duck and <laughs> continue on your way. It, it's really remarkable, and it's kind of like that in the heart path. Uh, being in your power means you can roll, roll. You can, you're resilient uh, others' opinions, others' uh, complaints and judgments just don't get to you. It's almost like, well, <laughs> does it matter what other people think in terms of one's own life there? Right. So, with that, with that becomes the ability to be more, to take more um, risks, to be more uh, prophetic, maybe, to use a Judeo Christian term, to be more authentic and to truly live out what needs to be done. And that's where the personal becomes the political and the. Uh, mm. Uh, the social in a positive way you become intimate with yourself you heal what needs to be healed which is a lifelong process but you become along the way a lot more resilient and uh, the power comes from inside you instead of needing the psychological approval of other people and through that and in that process becoming more, intimacy with, more intimate with the natural world which includes one's body in the individual sense Stop rejecting one's body. All these metaphors and mm. intersections, but you know what I'm saying. So it's, it's a progression. You just don't leap out into the world like Superman with a cape on. It's, <laughs> you still have to go through the dark places. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. And with these traditions, there are many helpers and just synchronicities that come along the way.
0: Ah, synchronicities. I love that tool that life uses to amaze us. That's the
1: the so-called hero or heroine's journey that in making this difficult downward phase of the journey into one's own heart and difficulties and dealing with those, that you're not alone. Along the way, you meet helpers. Like in any good novel or mythic story, they show up, and you don't know they're there until you start the journey. There's no assurance, no guarantee, no insurance policy. You have to take the first steps, but a little sincerity goes a long way in the spiritual life, whether it's the shamanic tradition or any other, is you have to make the first step. You make one step, and then the universe makes ten with you.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And then you make another one. You have to go first, and then you get another Deep response. So yes,
0: synchronicities uh, are um, are assured. I can say that assured. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? I, I like that word you used: uh, sincerity. Mm. Like, for instance, I'm I feel so tenderly about the sincerity I see in my cat. Mm. Yeah?
1: Yes, And
0: yes. And so how do you work with people probably to unveil this tender sincerity that one can find in the heart?
1: Mm. Wow, thank you for picking up on that, Joanna. No one's ever asked me that before in that way. I think it's a beautiful question. Um <sighs> I think there's a lot of relationship between this sincerity you picked up on and what I call in the book authenticity yeah. of self. And it's not that we walk around trying to be insincere; it's just that we do not know our authentic core selves. We've not been encouraged to know ourselves. The, one of my teachers years ago he was actually a Zen Buddhist teacher. And he described the human condition as like this. It's like we're born into life in the middle of the second act of a three-act play. We just appear on this stage and everything is already happening. <laughs> All the grown-ups have roles and seem to know what they're doing, and we basically spend half our lives or more just trying to figure out how to not get stepped on, <laughs> how right. to not upset the big people, keep mom and dad happy, and right. so on and so on which has nothing to do, of course, with our own unique gifts, using that metaphor of acting or singing or dancing. We just try to stay out of trouble and get the most thumbs-up that we can from our teachers and parents. So it's really hard to be sincere through no uh, lack on our part. But this heart path involves precisely that. getting clear on what... uh, I might call uh, a natural way of being. One of the exercises in my book is called Core Questions, and it's a series of open-ended questions carefully crafted to help a person quickly get to this level of sincerity or authenticity. And one of the initial questions is something like, um, think of a time in your life when you felt naturally yourself Mm. with no hindrance whatsoever. Right? And I give people a few moments to just imagine a time where whatever they were doing felt enjoyable but utterly natural without any struggle or striving. And that's, that's about sincerity. And there's power in that. Sincerity might imply sort of meekness or quietude, but it's not about that. It's about aligning yourself to who you really are. And when you find that, it's like, it's like, Light in a dark place that just naturally pulls you toward it, and you want more of it.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. So thank you for that question, and I can see how you would see that in your cat. Yeah. Or any animal that doesn't know about you know ego, self, and social
0: roles and so on. And being uh, well, they know about being defensive actually. So that's a really interesting. It's not just defensiveness but it's yes. it's a sick kind of defensiveness.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So I want to say that uh you call this paradise. Mm. Yeah. That's what yeah. you that's part of what you call paradise. So Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, describe paradise for us and uh
1: Yeah, so part of my training was uh going like many of your listeners have to To learn about uh, plant medicine, okay, so I went down to the Amazon with of uh-huh. people, and I learned about ayahuasca ceremony, and and, and the big, the big, beautiful um, heart opening awareness that came to me at the end of my last ceremony. I knew it was going to be my last time in the jungle, and I was standing alone, uh, <laughs> a bit weak kneed from the ceremony. Alone in the jungle, and I stood up and I just to sort of prop myself up. Frankly, found a small tree, and there was a V split in the in the trunk of the tree about my head level. I'm six foot three, and and, and, and so being unsteady on my feet, I just sort of walked over to the tree and I set my chin in this natural crook in the tree, and I wrapped my arms around the tree, uh, <laughs> partly to hold myself up, but partly because I just felt so connected to everything and. At that moment, the sun was setting in the Amazon jungle and the sun was low, low through the jungle canopy, almost in front of my eyes. It was a deep red and the monkeys were in the trees above me and all the insects and the creepy crawlies were all around me and the emerald green all around. And the dust motes all those tiny things that normally you wouldn't see because of the low level of the sun were were just drifting about in my vision. And, and what came to me, the last word, so to speak, from, from the queen, we called her in the jungle, the ayahuasca spirit, was, this is paradise, meaning right here. This, this is what both I've been seeking and what my teaching needs to be, because one of the questions I took to the jungle in the ceremonies was, <laughs> kind of like we were talking about earlier, as a middle-aged white guy, what? on earth, should I be teaching or doing with all of this? And what came back to me was, teach this. Teach this, meaning this is paradise. The the river that flows by your home Mm -hmm. is a sacred river, Mm -hmm. not just the Ganges, not just the Amazon River, but the Mississippi, the Ohio River, Mm -hmm. even that river that you might not want to bathe in because it's dirty. And we say things to each other like, ooh, that that river's polluted. And the emphatic response from nature is, no, the river is not polluted. The river is sacred, but it carries our pollution. It carries our waste. And that is not the river's problem.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so I came back with this this deeply imprinted, simple but vibrant, image of of standing there in the jungle, leaning against this tree, and being reminded with kind of a gentle dope slap to my modern sensibilities that, you know, I live on this polluted, you know, uh, earth. And and it's like, no, Jeff, this is paradise. And we can return to this, not in a, you know, uh, unrealistic way. But we're all standing on sacred ground. I I read something once in a biblical uh, treatise about how the ground that Moses stood on (laughs) was always sacred. He just didn't realize it until he had that encounter with the sacred in the burning bush. Uh And it's like that. Every step we take is on sacred ground. So that's my little sermon (laughs) on paradise. I thank you for listening to that, Joanna, and your listeners. Uh Uh-huh. I deeply believe that, everything around it. I live in an inner-city neighborhood, and every morning I take what I call alley walks through the winding, twisting alleys through this post-industrial city of South Bend. And, you know, it's not always pleasant. There are large dogs and trash and aromas in the summer that are not pleasant, but this is paradise. This is mm-hmm. still paradise, and, and it just needs a lot of work.
0: From what we've done to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What I brought back from the Amazon, one of the things I brought back from my travels to the Amazon was that was the absolute awe of how busy life is being alive. I mean, she's growing all over the place, on top, below, beside. She's just, she just takes every chance to be alive, every single, microscopic. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to create something new right there, right there, in this tiny little spot. I know this, yeah. giant Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely, and, and as I get older and do more of this work, the, the same places that used to make me unhappy and judgmental, for example, in the urban areas, all the concrete, the yeah. asphalt, and you know, it, it's not hard to find a tiny shoot of something green coming unbelievably out of a crack in concrete with that's 10 inches thick with iron rebar in it, for example, on a highway, and somehow life find a way. It's unbelievable. And, you know, if we didn't spread chemicals all over everything, it would take over again. It would yeah. essentially, I believe, heal itself if we would humans, would just stay out of the way. And so, yes, the awe of the busy life. It's easier to see in a place like the jungle or my favorite place, the Great Plains, when you get past the Mississippi and the Missouri where, once again, nature is bigger on the horizon than human creations. You get away from the skyscrapers and the interstates and so on. It sort of right-sizes one's perceptions. So,
0: But what are we going to do about all these toxic old white men? What have, <laughs> what, what are we going to do?
1: Well, if you haven't noticed in the news just the last few weeks, Toxic white men are having a very bad day. <laughs> toxic bad men are finally seen to be getting an uh, unexpected and large wave. Uh, you know, uh, who would have thought, right? Yes. That uh, these things are, even to big institutions, you know, that have traditionally been white male dominated, the Catholic Church, my own roots or these big corporations, even coal companies, who would have thought that at one day they would be struggling to keep their miners employed? You know, and, and, and there's great compassion that needs to be kept for the individuals, but these uh, social powers and institutions that have not been friends to the earth, thanks in large part to white guys like me, it seems to be <laughs> that nature is finally having its day in court, so to speak.
0: <laughs> so we'll we'll bring this conversation around with um, a phrase that's at the end of your book, and it's "What dream are you living in?" Mm,
1: yeah. So that, that's partly a Toltec understanding that, you know, we go through life and it's like we're in a dream, and we don't think we're in a dream, we think we're awake, doing important things. But in the Toltec tradition, and other spiritual tradition, the belief is we are actually, most of us, going through life in a kind of sleep state, not aware of our true potential or, negatively speaking, our impact. As we're mm-hmm. talking about on the Earth in nature, so the beautiful invitation to us is: what if we woke up from that dream of being kind of like zombies and not knowing it to a life where we actually had choices? And then the Toltec understanding, this uh, image of being an artist of the soul, where you could actually create a beautiful life, not in a simplistic or sort of <laughs> drunken. Uh, out-of-touch sense, but in a real sense, living an effortless life where you are creating beauty because you want to, creating the kind of beauty that attracts you and leaving behind you, as Thich Nhat Hanh might say, flowers in each of your footsteps, mm. blooming flowers. So it's, a, it's an invitation to people, you know, like, okay, so you don't like your life or your relationship or your job, well... <laughs> Stop being a victim and ask a, a beautiful new question is what kind of dream does your heart really want to be living? And that takes courage and a different way of thinking to ask a question like that because it puts the responsibility squarely on our own shoulders to do the necessary work and bring our, our hearts fully alive.
0: Mm-hmm. What would... What does courage from the heart look like?
1: Mm. Well, I can tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't mean standing with your teeth clenched and fists balled up, you know, waiting to uh, attack or be hit by or um, angrily um, uh, be in conflict with something that you don't like or you struggle with. That's just a, another form of resistance and Ego projection and all of that. Uh, courage in these traditions simply means the, the innate power, and as I said earlier, resilience, that comes from living the life that you're designed to live. So, for example, um, I love intense one-on-one conversations with people. Just like this. I could do this all day. Just like this. Me too. I Turn this into a career. Uh, who would have thought that I could make a living doing this? In other words, this isn't work for me compared to other roles I've had, like attorney or hospital chaplain, and so on and so on. So when you're in your power, courage it just comes naturally. So let's say that my new friend um, Joanna were upset with something I said, or one of your listeners called in with a complaint, or. It would. I would listen carefully, but it wouldn't crush me because I'm. I'm in my courage. I'm in my power, and mm-hmm. I still need to learn and make adjustments. Mm-hmm. But I'm living the life I'm supposed to be living. And you could apply this to any position and gift, an artist, uh, an architect, a teacher. If you found your power, if you found your medicine, the courage. Just naturally comes with this to first live the life you should be living, but also then, in a more social setting, to confront injustice. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that Martin Luther King, for example, or Joan of Arc, it was, it was difficult for them to do the work that they did, but there was a bigger passion burning in their hearts. Or yeah. Gandhi to, to, to receive the kind of violence and respond with nonviolence. Mm-hmm. It takes tremendous courage, but you don't get the sense that they were sort of <laughs> you know, hunkering down and gritting their teeth and waiting for the next blow kind of
0: courage,
1: <laughs> or a muscular kind of courage. It was just sort of a courage of conviction, I guess you might say, that came naturally with the territory and the power that they were plugged into.
0: So I want to remind everybody that... Uh, this beautiful book is The Lost Art of Heart Navigation, a modern shaman's field manual. Thank you so much, Jeff. It was absolutely wonderful being with you.
1: Well, thank you, Joanna. This is a huge privilege, a joy to get to talk to you personally. And I thank you for reaching out to me and giving me this uh, important um, uh, show to talk on. Thank
0: you. Good.